Let's pray once more. Again, O God of heaven, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, will you help us? Will you make your face to shine upon us? Will you open our eyes to behold the truth of your word? Will you soften our hearts to receive what is spoken here, that it may feed us and that we may feed by faith upon Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You were bought at a price. That carries us to Gethsemane. It carries us to Gabbatha. And ultimately it carries us to Golgotha, to the place called Skull, to Calvary. It carries us ultimately to this moment of our Lord Jesus' death. I don't know how often some of you have read this chapter Or how often, over the course of a long Christian life perhaps, you've worked your way through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Or perhaps uh, you're recently converted or just reading your Bible for the first time and you're hitting these things and you've never read them before in the way that they're presented here. And they come to you profoundly plain and strikingly simple. On one level, it would be easy to miss the death of Christ here, would it not? You read the portion that we read in Luke chapter 23. It's about the sixth hour. We've worked our way through some of the things that have been happening up to this point. Now the darkness comes. The veil of the temple is torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this... He breathed his last. And that is the death of Jesus of Nazareth. That is the sacrifice, the last moment of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. We've been trying to work through these things with a slow, a steady, a careful step, with a watchful eye and a tender heart. And I want to try and do the same briefly this evening as we come to that very core of our gospel. There are two signs here. There's one death and there are three reactions. The two signs are in the darkening skies and the torn veil. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sixth hour is midday. The ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. Even in a country like ours, we talk about something being bright as the noonday sun. This is the country of Israel. This is a time when the sun would have been beating down. But now a profound darkness comes over the land. It's certainly no eclipse Uh, Not least because it's the time of Passover and Passover falls at the full moon. And uh, no eclipse lasts for three hours of such complete darkness. We're not sure whether or not Luke, when he says over, he actually says it's over the whole. The whole what? The whole land? The whole earth? Difficult to know the precise extent of this But all the language here, all the detail here, points without fail to a supernatural act 
a divine work of God. The sun is darkened. It fails. It stops giving its light. It is a stunning declaration. Perhaps the closest parallel we have is in Amos and chapter 8 from verses 4 to 14. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist. I will bring baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. It's the language of judgment against sin. It's the language of a fearful condemnation. And everything here then seems to suggest that in the very cosmos itself there is some kind of echo of or response to the spiritual sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if the world itself draws a veil over what is taking place upon the cross. Nature itself testifies to the magnitude and the gravity of this moment as the Son of God feels the full weight of the wrath of his beloved Father against his sinless but sin-bearing soul. How many of you have lived through an eclipse? A proper one. Everything goes cold and dark. All the birds stop singing. All the animals get confused. Even the human beings not quite sure what to do. There's something eerie about it. Can you imagine an unnatural, supernatural darkness that falls across a whole land, perhaps across a whole planet, for three whole hours? How profoundly sobering this must have been. How disturbing to all. There's a second sign here. The sun has darkened, yes, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now that physical temple, remember we, we said this morning that the church of Christ is now the temple of God, the dwelling place of God in the spirit. That each individual Christian is joyfully indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. This is referring to the physical temple, that temple that Herod had built to replace Solomon's. And it was still at this point a symbol of the presence of God with his people. To go to the temple in Jerusalem was to draw near to God in some particular symbolic sense. It was the divine dwelling place. And there were these stages by which you could physically see yourself drawing near to God. 
The centre of it all was the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. That's where the high priest went only once every year with that sacrifice of blood to make atonement for the people. And outside of it, there was the holy place. And beyond that, the court of the Gentiles. And that holiest place of all was blocked off from everything else by a curtain, by a veil. It was, the estimates suggest, something like 10 metres high and 10 metres wide. That's not 10 metres. It's probably about six or seven and then up about the same distance. And its breadth was the breadth of a man's hand. It's about an inch thick. Probably shouldn't suggest this as a test. But if any of you kids go home tonight and you try and tear a normal pair of curtains hanging in your bedrooms or something, I'd be surprised if you could do even that. Don't try too hard. <laughs> you seen those strong men who rip the old telephone directories in half. It's a little bit like trying to do that, starting 10 metres in the air. And the veil of the temple is torn in two, Matthew tells us very particularly, from top to bottom. It wasn't a worn-out piece of scabby old cloth. It was a thick heavy curtain that was designed to protect those who were outside from the glory of God within. It barred access. It was a physical barrier to the most holy place. And in this second divine act, in this second stunning sign, that temple veil is torn in two from top to bottom. And there's a symbolic declaration that is taking place. And I think it works in two directions. First of all, it declares the obsolescence, that is the coming to an end of the whole Old Testament system of Jewish worship. Why? Because once the Lamb of God is slain, you do not need any more lambs. Any more oxen, any more bulls, any more goats. There may be an element of judgment in this. The temple is torn, and it may well be that there is no glory behind it. God never dwelt in temples made with hands in that sense. Yes, his Shekinah glory had come down on Solomon's temple. He had presenced himself amongst his people, but it may be making clear that God is no longer bound in this way, that he is now going forth and all the earth will come to him. But it testifies not only the fact that this has now come to an end, it also testifies that something else has begun, because now the way is open. There is no longer a barrier, not for Jews or for Gentiles. A new and living way has been opened through the body of Jesus Christ. And you and I, in Christ and only in Christ, now have access not into the holy place made with hands, but into the holiest place of all made without hands, the dwelling place of God in the heavens. This tearing of the veil in the temple says, in effect, not here, but more. 
No longer this, but better and higher and purer and sweeter. This is over, but something glorious has been brought in. These two signs, the skies darkened and the veil torn. And then this one death. And now we turn from the more symbolic to the more substantial. The language here is not immediately clear. Different commentators and different translators take two different lines. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That seems to suggest in a a translation that we have that there is a loud cry and then a further statement. Others working with exactly the same Greek text think he cried out with a loud voice and said, saying as he cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So is this one loud cry followed by his last words and his last breath? Or are these his last words cried aloud? I'm tempted personally to think that the crying out with a loud voice may refer to that last glorious declaration, it is finished. After which he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But not being able to say definitively that that is the case, we will concentrate simply on the last words and the last breath. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. That in itself is a testimony to his strength. He's been on the cross now for those hours, not just bearing in his body the pains of his suffering, but bearing in his soul the weight of sin and its condemnation. And still he has the fortitude and the will to cry out with a loud voice. He's hauling himself up in his shattered body for one last shout, his diaphragm straining, the nerves in his hands and his feet screaming as he tries to lift himself up to get enough breath into his failing lungs to speak one last time. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father. Such a sweet and precious word. It's been true every moment of this experience. Even when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was to his God and his Father that he cried. But now he is using that language again very particularly. As he comes to the end of his work, that reality of his heavenly Father is known and felt because the work has been completed. And it is no longer my God who is pouring out his wrath upon me. But my Father who is receiving me unto himself. And he uses the language of Psalm 31 and verse 5. Some suggest that this is not far off being a a sort of a Jewish lullaby. It's a bedtime prayer. In Psalm 31 itself, it's the righteous sufferer who puts himself in God's hands in order to deliver him. 
It is stunning. This absolute security and serenity at the end of these violent and brutal and dark hours. He entrusts himself peacefully to his father and his God in the very moment of his death. And I wonder if you look at Psalm 31 verse 5, it talks about redemption. Now we know that our Lord did not need redemption in that sense. He himself is the redeemer. But I've wondered if that language perhaps contains in it a note or a hint of the resurrection to come. That's the confidence with which this man commits himself into the hands of his father in heaven. He has nothing to fear. There is his confidence. There is his peace. There is his sense of the work that the Father has given him to do accomplished. And there is comfort for you too, Christian. Whose are you? You are his. If you have trusted in him, then what he enjoys, the peace he knows, the blessings he has obtained, they are all yours also. What does that mean for you and I when we come to our death? We don't relish death. We shouldn't relish death in one sense. There's something unnatural about it. And yet for the believer, transformed in itself. If this is what Christ can say, brother, sister, you can say it too. Now you may ask now, I don't know how I will say it. I don't know what my circumstances will be. I don't know what will come to pass. I'm not sure. No, and neither am I. But you do not lead dying grace until a dying hour. And in your dying hour, it is this upon which you will rest. It is him in whom you will trust. And you can say, and we should school ourselves now to say it, perhaps at the end of our days, Perhaps when we're going through deep and distressing circumstances. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in that we have rest. And so our Lord speaks. And to Psalm 31 verse 5 he adds this sweet testimony. That it is to his Father in heaven that he speaks. And having said this he breathed his last That in itself is quite distinctive language. He has gathered up his strength to cry out and now he speaks with calm confidence. Another of the gospel writers talks about him here, giving up his spirit. We sometimes still talk about giving up the ghost. That's the language that is brought from the gospels. He breathed his last. He commits his spirit into God's hands and then he breathes his last. He puts his soul as a deposit in the hands of his father. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, you have to remember the deliberateness of this. Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. That's what you're reading here. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he actively breathed his last. Here, Father, is my life. He puts it into his hands. Again, there's restfulness here. There's majesty 
There's power. There is wonder. And that's the death of Jesus Christ. You almost wonder, shouldn't there be something more? But this is, this is the climax. The triumph has been accomplished. And now there is peace. There is silence. And it's right for us to pause and to ponder in that moment of silence as you hear his expiring groan. Messiah dies for his people. Brother, sister, Messiah dies for you. He has experienced fully every moment of these hours, the agonies of them. Remember that when the, the typical drink of uh, some kind of drugged wine was offered to take the edge off the agony that he suffered on the cross, he refused that drink. He did wet his lips once in order that he might be able to testify as he needed to, but he did not allow one drop of anything that would have taken off the necessary sense of the wrath of God poured out upon him. Perfect humanity, a sinless soul, the exquisite agonies of a man who could feel every stroke of God's wrath in his whole frame. He felt every second of that suffering. He felt all the thrill of his triumph. It is finished. It was not a cry of despair, not a cry of loss, but a cry of conquest. It is done. The work has been accomplished. And our Saviour felt that. And he feels this. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. He deposited everything that he was in the hands of his Father because salvation had been accomplished. Christian, you are not your own. You have been bought at a price. And this is the price. This is the cost of your salvation. Jesus of Nazareth has made atonement for you. And there is peace with God. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. There are three reactions here. The soldier gives his testimony, the centurion. He saw what had happened. He glorified God and he said, certainly this was a righteous man. He saw what had happened. How much of what had happened? It's quite likely he's been standing there, certainly for the whole time of the crucifixion, perhaps from before then. He's never encountered such a presence as this man had. 
He's never seen such, heard such prayers. Remember, this is the Christ who was pleading as the soldiers hammered the nails into his flesh. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He's never seen such pain as this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's never seen such power as this. A man rising up to declare triumph in the moment of his death. He's never seen such peace as this, perhaps. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We're told that there was darkness. By others, we're told that there was an earthquake. These signs in the heavens and in the earth. The centurion saw what had happened. He's aware at least of some of these things. And his response is to glorify God. And it's clear that he's recognising here the God of heaven and of earth. And he testifies. Remember, we've heard something of this over and over and over again in the course of this history. That this was a righteous man and there is no doubt about it. He was a righteous man with regard to other men. He's testifying that this was an unjust act, humanly speaking. That this was that innocent man that Pilate had identified and that others had also testified to. But also he's testifying that he is righteous with regard to God. That this criminal dying on the cross, this is a man in good standing with the God of heaven and of earth. And so, even here, at the very moment of his death, do you remember how he's been sparing his time? Sparing his energy. He speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. He prays for the soldiers. We know from other records some of the other things that he says and does. He speaks to the thief who is there next to him. This day you will be with me in paradise. And in the very moment of his death, he is the saviour of sinners. Do you remember that he will be light for the Gentiles? And here is a Roman soldier, the very moment in which Christ breathes his last, testifies, certainly this was a righteous man. Remember Luke's writing this for Theophilus and through Theophilus for us. These are the things most surely believed. These are the things of which he needs to be ever more persuaded. Theophilus, do you agree? Do you believe that this was a righteous man? Is that the testimony of your soul? Are you seeing the Son of God as he dies on the cross for sinners like us? Do you see it? Is this what you see? This righteous man who has suffered in the place of others. This substitutionary death. Christ for us. There's a warning in the testimony of the centurion, isn't there? He saw what had happened and he was able to draw the right conclusion. That tells us that it's not mere ignorance, but a willful, a stubborn, a sinful arrogance on the part of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and others who could not and would not see the plainness of the evidence that lay before them. Let's not fall into that trap even this evening to read these things, to see what has happened, to have this record set before us and not to reach the only true conclusion 
Certainly this was a righteous man. Certainly this was the Son of God. There's another reaction from the crowd. They'd come together to that site. As in other parts of this world, different times in this world, in our own country, a good execution is a spectacle to be seen. These three crosses would have been put in a prominent location, perhaps by a roadside, to maximise the shame and the distress. And the crowd, this great multitude, they'd come together to see these things. And there's a curious majority, perhaps solemnised now by the darkness, perhaps with their souls bowed down. They have heard Christ crying in the darkness on the cross. Some of them perhaps close enough to hear him say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Perhaps some of them listening as a centurion glorifies God and said, surely this man was the son of God. Surely he was a righteous man. And they're not so entertained as they thought they would be more disturbed. Most of the commentators suggest that they're not just going through the motions, they are troubled. That's what beating your breast does. It's expressing, this is, this is a fearful thing. And they returned. Earlier, perhaps, they'd been amongst those who were baying for the blood of Jesus of Nazareth. And now, with a heavy tread and a sombre silence, they make their way back to Jerusalem not really sure what they have seen and what to make of these things. And there's a third reaction. All his acquaintances, doesn't seem like all the disciples were there, we only know that John was, and the women who followed him from Galilee, and they stood at a distance watching these things. It's a curious testimony, isn't it? You almost imagine that they should be doing something here. Some of them will act soon. But at this point, they're simply standing and watching. Psalm 88. To you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors, I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Verse 18. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. And there they are, standing at a distance. There they are, watching these things, perhaps simply stunned. We know that, for example, the, the two that were on the road to Emmaus, they were so troubled, weren't they? We thought that it was he who was going to deliver Israel. Maybe that's what keeps them just standing and staring at a distance, wondering... What, what, what now? What is this? What should we make of these things? Distressed, grieving. They're lingering. They're watching these things. We'll say this. At least they're keeping their eyes upon Jesus Christ. Soon they will learn more. But for now, they simply stand 
and watch. When you do that, what do you see? As you stand and watch Jesus of Nazareth dying on the cross, is there grief, perhaps like those who beat their breasts? I would say to you something like what Christ said to the daughters of Jerusalem. Are you grieving for the right thing? Are you grieving over your sins? Are you grieving because it is your transgressions that have nailed this Christ to the cross? Perhaps there's a measure of calmness, like his acquaintances, or, or silence, a lingering gaze. But let it not be one that is troubled. We don't need to be bewildered. We know. We know what's happening here. Let us linger in love and watch these things that our souls may be stirred. Best of all, even if we're not quite sure quite how high he reached, let us look with faith. Do you see what's been happening? Have you traced what's been taking place? Have you followed along as Jesus Christ has been delivered into the hands of wicked men, as he has suffered at the hands both of the Jews and of the Gentiles, as he's been taken by lawless hands and put to death? What is your conclusion? Is it a cry of faith? Is it a declaration of love? Is it wonder because of what God has done? Can you say, this is the Son of God? This is a righteous man. This is the lamb slain. This is the price paid for me. This is my Lord, my God, my Messiah, who has died to set me free. Amen.